able to celebrate with you in your midsummer mission celebration, celebration and to uh, hear about how much um, this church has been invested in missions uh, since it first began 16 years ago. So uh, I'm Joel, my wife is Karen, and we are the people that you've supported since the very beginning, and we are privileged, we are grateful, we are thankful to have been uh, a part of what you're doing and to uh, have your support as we work in Burkina Faso. Karen and I went to Burkina in 1997, and the first couple years I was teaching in a Bible school, helping prepare uh, young uh, Africans for pastoral ministry. That's when Neil and Christina came over for a visit as well. And Neil taught a course on the pastoral epistles, I think. And I got really sick towards the end. And I was, I was translating for him. And the last day or two, I could hardly keep going. And I was just on automatic pilot. He would say something in English, and I would put it into French. And we, we kind of coasted in there at the very end. And I was crashing and burning. But the Lord preserved us through all that. Um, after a few years of teaching in that Bible school, I got involved with some people doing mission mobilization. And we had a course that we called Perspectives. We translated a bunch of stuff into French, and we started traveling around the French-speaking countries in Africa, and there's a lot of them, and we started challenging African churches to get involved in mission. And it was a small group of people. It was really an exciting time. And out of that, um, in 2003, uh, we set up missionary training. And people started coming from different parts of Africa to come to our school in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso. And we did a whole program to prepare Africans to serve in mission. And so for 15 years, I worked at that school and trained many different people from many different parts of Africa who are now serving. And I think last I knew, it was something like 13 different countries. Um, graduates are working, doing missions of some kind. And that's been really encouraging. I think years... Uh, from now, I'll look back and think that was really a fulfilling time of ministry to see Africans now launching off and going into different parts of the world um, in ministry. Now, the last few years, I've been tangled up in administration, and administration is ministry, and serving others in that way uh, needs to happen. Um, I might, if I can be honest with you, I don't always feel that my passions are coming out when I'm going to committee meetings, I'm on a lot of committees and trying to solve some financial messes. We have two hospitals that are really struggling. And uh, so I've been doing that for the last few years. And um, God is good. God has preserved me through some difficulties that haven't always been uh, fun, but they need to happen. And so it's sort of serving the larger mission community and family there. One of the things that Neil alluded to um, as he was introducing us is our whole part of Africa is really changing because of Islamic terrorism. You might remember a few years ago that Colonel Gaddafi, who was the leader in uh, Libya at the time, was going down, and um, all kinds of people wanted him out of the way because he was sponsoring terrorism in different parts of the world. There's this large people group in West Africa called the Tuareg, and we even have a car. I think it's a Volkswagen Tuareg or something like that here, named after this people group. Um, they ride camels, they have turbans, they're the ones that come up with the swords that people buy in the Grand Marche in Ouagadougou, and they love Gaddafi. They're a Muslim people group. He identifies with nomadic peoples. Um, he used to come to New York City 
um, for big meetings, and he would pitch a tent and say, I stand, I represent the nomadic peoples of the world. So when Gaddafi was going down, thousands of Tuareg left Burkina, Mali, Niger, northern Nigeria, and Chad, and they took up arms. They went to join the fight, and um, he went down. So Colonel Gaddafi was killed, and then you have thousands of these people coming down into West Africa, not with little leather swords anymore, but with sophisticated weaponry that they picked up when they were uh, participating in the war there. So they all came back into our part of Africa. Al-Qaeda, there's Al-Qaeda of the Islamic Maghreb, which is a local chapter. Um, started in Mauritania, it spread over into Mali. Mali is pretty much overrun. Other than Bamako, most of Mali is being controlled by Islamic terrorists. So you have Al-Qaeda on one side, on the eastern side of us where you see northern Nigeria, um, Boko Haram has taken over a lot of northern Nigeria. And I was in Nigeria just last week, by the way. And so West Africa is becoming increasingly controlled by Islamic terror. So missionaries are being killed, missionaries are being kidnapped, and fewer missionaries with families thinking they were going to work there long term are coming. And in fact, our mission is probably lost this year and next year, we will have lost about a third of our missionary team. So we're facing transition, we're facing difficulties. Um, fewer and fewer, all of the north of Burkina is now off limits, most of the east is off limits. And every couple months we get new maps from the embassy saying, you know, it is forbidden for our citizens to go here and there and we just feel the pinch. Uh, and it's, so it's, it's difficult times. We're facing times of transition. We're facing times of weakness. We're facing times of uncertainty. And this morning, I'm wondering if the uncertainty, if the weakness, and the difficulties that we're facing in West Africa aren't also something that you might be facing in your life. Um, it's weird that we've been in Africa as long as we've been. It seems like when you're really busy, perhaps time goes by and you're not really aware of it, but it's been a long time. And every couple of years, we come back. And I've just noticed that it seems like society in our country here seems to really be in transition and really be changing. And society be, is becoming much more secular. And there are godly men and women who want to live a life that pleases God that are probably feeling like they're in a situation of weakness or they're in a situation of uncertainty. And so I wondered today if we couldn't find a passage of scripture that would encourage us uh, if we are facing these times of difficulty, insecurity. And I, I found Joshua, Joshua chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there. Uh, we're going to look at a small passage of Scripture. It's not very long, but I think it speaks to people in exactly the kind of situation that we are in today. Joshua chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. And then I'll read a few verses at the beginning of chapter 6. Joshua 5.13. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, Are you friend or foe? If you're reading the NIV, it reads something like, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither one. He replied, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with face to the ground in reverence. 
I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. I'm going to end. It's a little bit awkward there not to go into the the whole rest of chapter 6, but I think that we read the essential part for um, our message this morning. How do we live as responsible Christians in the uncertain world that we're facing today? How do we live fruitful lives, productive lives, when we sense that everything is changing and the world is strangely uh, against us? I think one thing that encourages me is to remember that the world uh, has always been against God's truth. And the church has almost always flourished in times of opposition and in times of difficulty. And so if we sense that there's a, uh, a change or if we sense that, that, that society is becoming increasingly secular, I think it's what God's people have often felt throughout the world and throughout all of history. And one of the things I think that would be true of Joshua here in this passage and could be true for many of us in the church today, is that it's a time of transition. Times are changing. Things are changing. And how do we maintain our faith in God and hope that comes from that uh, when times are changing and we feel very insecure? And so the first thing I'd like to encourage us to do is to trust in God in times of transition. Now, the transition Joshua is facing here is something that you you know about because Moses was the leader that God used to lead the people out of Egypt. And unless I'm mistaken, you're in the middle of a passage talking about sort of the journey or the pilgrimage that God's people took as they left Egypt and all the wandering they did. And there's all kinds of things that are going on in the life of that people or that nation as they're transitioning from a life of captivity, a life of being dominated by Uh, hostile forces to their lives and their livelihood, and they're being taken out of that hostility and that um, uh, awful life, and they're being set free, and they're going towards the promised land. So you're in the middle of that sort of series, and so this is going to make sense to you. Joshua is playing a crucial part in that time of transition. Here where we are in our story, Joshua is now the brand new leader. And Moses, who's been that faithful rock that leader that God has used. It took a lot of years to prepare him for ministry. He had 40 years of being a shepherd uh, until God calls him and now uses him for 40 years to lead God's people. But he's gone now. And Joshua is the new leader. And he's sort of at the beginning of his transition point when we come to this story here. I want to jump ahead. And it might seem a little bit awkward, but I want to convince you that this time of transition that we read about here in the book of Joshua is not too different from another crucial time in the history of God's people when there was a major transition going on. And I want to get you to the end of Matthew uh, chapter 28. You don't have to go there in your Bibles. You know what's happening there. There's a transition of leadership. Moses is going away and Joshua's becoming the new leader. 
And at the end of the Gospels, and we're using Matthew 28 here, Jesus is going away. But the mission must continue. And so Jesus is going away, and leadership of this sort of worldwide movement of Christ followers is transitioning from the leadership of Jesus to the leadership of the Twelve. And so that's happening, and of course it continues on in the book of Acts. And there are many dynamics that are very similar to that transition in the New Testament, of which we are, we are inherit, we've inherited sort of that whole mission coming from that. And that same time of transition can be seen here in the passage we're looking at today. The first thing that we notice is that there is the leaving of the first leader. Moses is gone. Joshua is the new leader. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And he is going to give, of course, leadership of this movement over to the disciples. The second thing is the new leaders need to be prepared. And, of course, towards the end of Jesus' life and ministry, he spends less and less time with the crowds, either teaching or performing miracles, and he spends more and more time focused on the 12, getting them ready for this task. They don't even really completely understand everything that's going to happen. They're not even ready for Jesus to leave. They argue when he says he's got to leave. They don't understand that he's going to die and rise from the dead. There's a lot of confusion, but Jesus spends more and more time with the 12, preparing them and getting them ready. And in a very similar way, Moses has been doing that. If you read towards the end of uh, Moses' ministry or life, there are several times when he takes Caleb and Joshua, and he's working more and more with them, preparing them for the time when leadership will be given to them. Thirdly, there's a strong emphasis on obeying God's word as the key to success. Many of you, if you've memorized anything in the book of Joshua, it could well be Joshua 1.8. And that is what is being impressed upon Joshua as he's being prepared to be the new leader. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So for Joshua, the new leader, uh, it's impressed upon him the importance of keeping to God's word, studying God's word, being in God's word, being careful to obey God's word. And his success in his life and in his leadership is intimately tied to obeying, believing, and obeying and putting into practice God's word. And when you see the transition in the New Testament, when the same type of leadership transition is happening, Jesus, as he's commissioning the disciples to go into all the world and to make disciples, a key fact that he tells them is, when you go, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so there's still this same focus on believing and obeying and teaching others the importance of God's word. Hope Chapel, you've had a wonderful 16 years. God has done amazing things, and it's grown from a small group to a larger church, and God is doing exciting things. But never may must we ever stray from a central focus on believing and studying and putting into practice God's word. That is when we will be successful, when we're being obedient to God and, of course, to his word. Then also, in as leadership is transitioning from Moses to Joshua, um, he is told in Joshua chapter 1, he will be successful as long as he is obeying God's word. His success is guaranteed. The presence of God in his life and ministry will be there if he is attached and applying God's word. 
And, of course, Jesus tells the same things to the 12. When he sends them off, the Great Commission is, Lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. As long as they are in the world, making disciples, taking initiative, going where Christ is not known, Jesus has promised to be with them, to accompany them, to protect them. Like that staff uh, reminded us this morning, sort of an object lesson of God's presence, his protection, his power with his people. And then Joshua has a task. He has a mission that's well-defined. He's going to lead the people across the Jordan River. Moses can't do it. He's been disqualified. But Joshua can. He's going to lead the people across the river, and now the promised land is there before him. God is giving it to them. It's sort of a double dynamic. It's a gift of God. It's been promised by God. It's been laid out for them, but they will participate in the taking of it. And so uh, they don't even settle it for quite a while. They participate. They go in faith. Waters don't part until our feet get wet, as one song reminds us. And they will enter that Jordan River, and it will separate. They will cross. They will march and worship God around the walls of Jericho, and the walls will fall. And that becomes sort of a paradigm or an example of God's people stepping out in faith, uh, giving, even when we don't think that we can give that much to missions, putting the money in the plate, taking a step, going on a mission trip, spending time in prayer, encouraging others to go, as sort of sacrificially uh, stepping out in faith, even if we don't always know where the resources will come from. That has always been the pattern that God has had for his people. And so there's this mission. Joshua has to take the promised land. And, of course, the mission is clear for the 12. Go into all the world. It's a bigger uh, mission in many ways. It's a bigger mission. Go into all the world. Places where Christ is not known. Declare his goodness and his greatness. Uh, Bring people to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Make them into disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So Joshua is facing a time of transition. Things are changing. How will he be? Will he trust God in that time of transition? The second thing that comes out of this passage is um, depending on God in times of weakness. Depending on God in moments of weakness. We didn't have the time this morning to read all of chapter 5 of Joshua. Had we done so, you would have noticed several things. Number one, the manna stops. Right before they attack the city of Jericho, God tells Moses, no more manna. Now, uh, Moses had quite a big group. He's got a lot more disciples than Jesus had when he's sending off the 12 disciples. He might have had about a million and 800,000 people. He had a lot of people. And God had been supernaturally providing for them uh, for 40 years. Uh, Manna, quail, when they were hungry, God was providing. God was supernaturally intervening uh, in their lives to provide for them throughout that pilgrimage time. It would be very easy to become dependent on that. It would become very easy to just expect God, hey, I wake up, I go out of my tent, and food has descended from heaven. It's, It's a wonderful way to live. But just before they cross uh, the Jordan and face the walls of Jericho, the manna stops. That must have been sort of a transition time where Joshua is saying, Lord, you did that for Moses. 
You know, he was a much more experienced leader, and he had all the manna and the quail. I'm the new guy just starting. I don't have the respect of the people that Moses had, and now you're taking even the manna away. You're handicapping me um, from the very beginning. The manna stopped as they were entering the promised land. The second thing that we read about in this same chapter, chapter 5, is that none of the men who had been wandering for those 40 years, all the people born during that time, the men had not been circumcised. And so God says, hey, before we go in and take possession of the promised land, I want all the men circumcised. And so our story happens. A day or two after all the men have been circumcised, they're back at the camp. They're feeling rather sore. They're not feeling up to battle at this point. And uh, Joshua's army has been considerably weakened just prior to taking uh, Jericho. So they're ministering out of a time of weakness. As we saw in chapter 6, Joshua's looking at at, at the city of Jericho, and he notices the city is tightly shut up. Those walls are very big. Uh, Those walls are very thick. No one can get in, and no one can get out. So not only are we in a very weakened state, not only do we no longer have food coming to us, we've got to somehow find food to feed this huge horde of people, but the enemy is very strong. The enemy is very protected. The walls are very high. The city is tightly shut up. Um, So depending on God in times of weakness... Uh, Joshua had a huge battle ahead of him, but he was starting from a position of weakness. And third thing I want to point out is obeying God in times of uncertainty. Obeying God in times of uncertainty. We have this interesting story. The men have just been circumcised. No more manas coming from heaven. And Joshua gets up early. He goes, perhaps he's looking at the city of Jericho, Maybe he's trying to think strategically. What are we going to do here? I'm the new leader. There's no more Moses. People are going to be depending on me to figure out how to get this city. What are we going to do? But he's up early in the morning. He's looking at this city. And there before him stands the army, the angel of the army of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army. Some people, some commentators will argue that this is a pre-incarnation, an appearance of Jesus before of course, what happens in the New Testament. Uh, And here before Joshua is the Lord. And he asks a question, you know, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Now, when Joshua asks that question, he is assuming, he is sure that the Lord is on his side. After all, Joshua is leading the people of God. Joshua's leading the people of Yahweh. And if this is the commander of the Lord's army, of Yahweh's army, then it's a foregone conclusion that the commander of the Lord's army is on his side. And yet when he asks the question, the answer that he gets is quite shocking. Because the commander of the Lord's army says neither. In other words, I'm not on your side, and I'm not on your enemy's side. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua realizes that he is in a big game here, and he falls on his face in front of the commander of the Lord's army and begins worshiping, which is, of course, an appropriate response. And the commander of the Lord's army says, look, while you're at it, take your sandals off because you are on holy ground. And we can't hear that and not think about Moses in front of the burning bush. And we realize that during this transition time, 
this young leader who's living in a time of transition, whose mentor has left, and now he has this huge city in front of him. He's ministering out of weakness. There's no more food. All the men have just been circumcised. The city walls are tall and high and thick, and no one can go in or out of that city. God provides for him a unique and amazing experience, just like Moses had. And you realize that he has come early on in his ministry. He has an intimate experience with the commander of the Lord's army who also cares about him, who also takes time to reveal himself to him. And even though the question was wrong, and even though he doesn't answer the way Joshua thinks he's going to answer, he has a moment with the Lord Jesus Christ, before he becomes born in a manger uh, at Christmas time, there he has an encounter with the living God. And he hears the same words that his mentor Moses heard. Take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. A soldier taking his shoes off puts him even in more of a situation of weakness and dependency. I've often wondered about that question. The second question Joshua asks is the right one. What do you want me to do? That would be an appropriate question when faced with the living God. What should I do? I'm ready to be obedient. Give me instructions and I will follow. But his first question seemed out of place because he didn't get the answer that he assumed. He didn't have God on his side. And I think he was expecting, all of the universe would have expected the commander of the Lord's army to say, of course, Joshua, I am on your side. In fact, I'm showing myself to you today to give you that hope and that courage you need in the absence of Moses to go forward with courage because I am with you. But that's not how God answers. The question isn't whether God is on Joshua's side. The question is whether Joshua is on God's side because God is holy and God is worthy and God stands above the human fray of human activity and fighting and tribalism. God stands above that. And he is completely worthy and holy and other than whatever the other things that Joshua was involved in at that time. And that question of obedience will be a question that haunts Joshua for all of his life and all of his ministry. Is Joshua on God's side? Is Joshua ready to be obedient to God even in times of uncertainty? And if you think I'm exaggerating, had we read into chapter 2, The the instructions that God is going to give Joshua for taking that city do not make sense, humanly speaking. All right? So, Joshua, are you on my side? Do you realize that I'm the holy God? Are you ready to worship me and obey me? That's the most important question at this point. I'm about to give you instructions that do not make sense. This is how you're going to take Jericho. I want you to line the people up, and I want you to put the singers in the front. And I want you to march around the city singing and praising God. God needs to know if Joshua is ready to be obedient to him and not expecting a God who he can stick in his back pocket, a God who's going to do everything according to Joshua's plan. The bigger question is, is Joshua ready and willing to be obedient to God and his plan? Now, As I was preparing this this week, I chatted with my father-in-law. We kind of preached to each other on Thursday and gave each other some pointers. We do that every now and then. I listened to his sermon, gave him some ideas. He listened to mine. And he said, Joel, you got to look up Abraham Lincoln. Because Abraham Lincoln, and I didn't tell this in the first, I cut things out the first service because time was getting away from us. 
It might be getting away from us now. But I will soon be done. Um, Abraham Lincoln. And then uh, after the first service, someone came up and said, hey, there's an Abraham Lincoln story like this. And the question is asked of Abraham Lincoln, hey, people in the South during the war are praying that God would help them and they want to be victorious. Here we are in the North and we believe in God and we are praying and assuming that God's going to give us the victory. Whose side is God on? And apparently Abraham Lincoln now, whether he's quoting directly from this story or he knows God's word enough, he says the real answer is not are we on, uh, is God on our side or on the side of the South? The real question is who is on God's side? In other words, God is ultimately sovereign. God is ultimately Lord. And the ultimate question for all of us is will we be obedient to God even in times of uncertainty, even when his word doesn't make sense, humanly speaking, to the kinds of issues we're facing in our family, the kinds of issues we're facing in our church. Will we believe God? Will we be obedient to God? Will we put his word into practice because we are on his side and he is sovereign and he is worthy? That is the question for me in the things I'm facing in Burkina. And that's probably the question for each of you. No matter what God is doing in your lives, or in your ministry, are you obedient to God, even in times of uncertainty? Are you committed to putting his word into practice, even when things don't make sense, and you're unsure because you're in a time of transition, you're dealing with weaknesses in your life or your family, or things seem really uncertain? Do you believe God? Are you built on his word? Are you determined to put his word into practice? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its consistency. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. Lord, I pray for each person here. You know the struggles we are facing. You know the weaknesses we are dealing with. You know that times have become very uncertain. I pray for each one of us here that you would help us to lift you up as holy, as worthy. I pray that we would be committed more than ever to believing your word and to putting it into practice even when things don't make sense. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you promise to be with us as we take your truth into this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.